FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us today. You know, it's interesting, at least my language has changed a bit as I talk about what used to be called Election Day, uh, the day that we vote. That happens next Tuesday, May 24th. But so many people for a few years now have been voting uh, by absentee ballot or going out and uh, doing advance uh, voting in person that I now think a week from today is what we should call the final day of voting in uh, the Georgia primary elections. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to talk about the extraordinary number of people who have cast ballots already and what some think it may mean, especially about Republican contests. We'll do that and a lot more on the show today. We start with our Tuesday a partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC. How are you, Tamar? Hey, Bill. Excited to be here. Are you one of those advance voting people, or do you like to go to the— I'm, for the first time, going on Election Day for the first time in a long time because I really love seeing some of my neighbors, elderly people mostly, who uh, come out and staff the polls. Yeah, in general, I like to vote early since Election Day is such a hectic day for us political yeah. reporters. So one less thing to do. Um, and in general, you know, as a reporter, as a political reporter, I actually don't I choose not to vote in primaries since I cover a lot of these candidates. But you talk to each journalist and everyone kind of has their own answer about what they like to do. Some don't vote at all. I tend to vote in general. Um, some people vote and they, it doesn't really bother them. So um, that's kind of where I land on primaries. Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, the online news uh, publication, um, I'm curious about your thinking about that. I know there is that notion that maybe journalists shouldn't vote in uh, primary elections. I always have felt that it was a responsibility uh, to do that. But where, where do you feel about that? Yep, I, I am a journalist. I'm also an American and a Georgian resident, and um, voting is my civic right just as much as it is for every other Georgian. So, yes, I go and vote. Um, because Georgia is an open primary state, I feel like that all of us here can choose um, choose the people that, that we want to represent us at every um, stage of the process. And in general, I am an early voter um, as well because uh, I don't want to miss out on that chance to vote and, and cast my ballot. And voting day, generally, as Tamar said, is a busy one for, for those of us in the journalism yeah. trenches. So, um, but yeah, I, I feel like where, where things start to cross the line is if I am a voter on election day and I need to get um, people's opinions, I can't do that while I'm standing in line. And so um, early voting <laughs> means I can then do my job uh, without any impediment yeah. on voting day or final voting day, as you've called it. Uh, Tia Mitchell, I'll introduce you to in a sec, but let me just say to our, our listeners, I guess what we should explain what we're talking about here. There are people who believe that because you have to choose a Democratic, Republican ballot, whatever, um, that you're making a partisan choice, which is why there are some people who think journalists in primary elections should stay free. Uh, Tia Mitchell, 
I, instead of asking you about that, want to instead congratulate you. Last Aww. week, you won a very prestigious award, uh, the David Lynch uh, award for regional reporters. You won the award at the Washington Press Club Foundation uh, evening last week. Uh, it's an award that is given for incisive coverage, clear writing, and an ability to explain complex subjects to a hometown audience. David Lynch was a longtime Washington correspondent for newspapers in Buffalo and New England. It's a tremendous honor and um Really thrilled that you're here on the show today, so we can congratulate you. Oh, well, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is among those regional papers that still invest in having a reporter in Washington, and it definitely takes a village. My predecessor, Tamar, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if people like Tamar weren't there to help and guide me. I lean on her. So much y'all don't even know. So um, thank you so much. It is an honor, and I appreciate all the love I've received from from uh, back in Georgia. Well, all right. Election is really heating up to to a boiling point right now. Um, tomorrow, let's. Why don't we go ahead and start about uh, talking about the early vote at this point? As of uh, yesterday, the end of voting yesterday. Almost ha- close to a half a million people. Four hundred sixteen thousand five hundred fifty-eight people have voted early. Forty-two um, percent of them were taking Democratic ballots. Fifty-seven uh, percent took Republican ballots. But it's—I've said it in, uh, before. The thirst for getting out to vote is extraordinary right now. Tomorrow. I mean, it's hard to get away from it. You know, the, the stakes are so massive, as everyone will say. And there's such different visions for kind of how the state should be led. So it's not surprising to me at all um, that, that such a rush of people have been coming out, especially amid all the uncertainty of what our new elections law is going to look like. So it doesn't surprise me that people want to vote early, just kind of get it out of the way. Um, it, you know, what's even more interesting, as we're going to talk about, is the number of Democrats who, or, or people who have voted Democratic as recently as 2020 who have pulled Republican ballots this cycle and, and what that might see, say about the state of Georgia politics right now. Yeah, Tia, um, although his numbers are now a couple of days old, uh, your colleague Mark Nisi, who follows elections for the AJC, had a report the other day in which he said that about 7% <clears throat> excuse me, of people who two years ago pulled Democratic ballots uh, this year are pulling Republican ballots, um, and that number has probably gone up considerably because at that point I think he was looking at a pool of only 240 or so thousand total voters. Uh, so that may be continuing. The, Tia, the Purdue people are arguing that those are people crossing over voting for David Purdue. I, I'm not sure that's much more than wishful thinking on their part. Yeah, um, and and I anecdotally heard from an AJC reader who says that Democrats are crossing over to pull Republican ballots, in particular in some of these uh, races where not just the governor's race, but, you know, some of these congressional races. Um, I wrote earlier this week about 
Representative Adam Kinzinger, who's from Illinois, but he has a PAC that's encouraging people, particularly in the 14th district, to cross over and select one of those other Republicans on the primary against Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance. So, um, you know, Mark didn't divide it up by, you know, zip code or anything like that, but I think we might find there are pockets of this happening. In addition, um, that's always been something that people in metro Atlanta have done. You know, Carolyn Bordeaux was criticized in the debate for doing that um, one year when she crossed over because she was worried about the rise of Donald Trump. I believe that was 2016, I believe, that she or 2012 maybe. But anyways, there was a presidential year where Carolyn Bordeaux pulled a Republican ballot because she said she was worried about extremism. As we know, if you're in metro Atlanta, the Democrats are usually safe in the primary, so you've always heard that happening sometimes where there's more action on the Republican side. So um, it'll be interesting to see where these voters are coming from as the, you know, once the primary concludes. Margaret, I should have pointed out uh, that, of course, you're down there in Savannah and, and the current uh, uh, sees as its first responsibility covering coastal Georgia, the politics and the news of coastal Georgia and I should have mentioned that when I introduced you. So um, you're not sure whether there's much of that going on down your way, right? Yeah, well, we um, in our, our weekly newsletters this morning and um, Tuesdays, we put out our political newsletter. And um, part one of our segments is the actual low numbers of, of turnout here along um, along the eight or nine um, districts that make up the first district of Georgia here in coastal Georgia. Only Approximately 7% of coastal Georgians registered to vote have actually voted early. And that, like as a whole, is an incredibly low number. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure that there's a lot of crossover voting happening. I'm not sure there's a lot of voting happening altogether. The numbers sort of show that um, um, around here. But, you know, we have a, the majority minority county, Liberty County, where about 8% of registered voters have voted early here in Chatham County, which is, of course, um, Savannah and our environment. We have one of the largest municipalities in Georgia in Pooler. Savannah, of course, is majority minority, but still only 6.6% of registered voters have voted here um, in, in early voting. So there, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know how these numbers are all going to break down by next Tuesday night, but there still is a lot of ground game left. If candidates who think that they're losing right now, if there's a lot of room to get people out to vote in order to get them over the finish line. Um, that's really, uh, uh, it strikes me as uh, particularly interesting um, because I, I, I'm not sure there's a rationale why the numbers would be lower down along the coast than in much of the rest of the state, Margaret. Yeah, I think that there's probably, there's, there's not a whole lot of excitement on the Democratic side because you don't have a, a gubernatorial um, uh, primary um, you know, here in the first district, we have uh, our longstanding incumbent, Representative Buddy Carter, is running unopposed on the Republican side. We have a, a really dynamic race for the Democratic primary, and and so people might still be making up their mind about who they want to um, vote for for that race. But otherwise, we're talking about you know, uh, I think state senators. We, we're talking about school boards, and in a midterm year, it's hard to get people uh, excited about local races, especially first-time candidate races, where, um, yeah. where communities might not know who, who, who the people are who, who want to represent us. 
I, I think that's important uh, that you point that out. And, and tomorrow, that actually leads us into a topic that I'm, I'm really interested in hearing all of you discuss. Uh, tomorrow, we know that Republicans are voting in larger numbers, or we imagine, uh, because they do have some competitive races. I mean, particularly David Perdue against uh, Brian Kemp, whereas you know, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock are at the top of the Democratic ticket unopposed. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening with the um, split in the Republican Party, the state Republican Party, between Purdue and Kemp. Kemp has been getting uh, support. He's building momentum. George W. Bush has now endorsed him, the former president, uh, the, the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, who also is fighting with Donald Trump because Trump wanted Ducey to overturn the results of the Arizona presidential election there he was in town to in the state to uh endorse brian kemp we've got the speaker of the house david ralston who used to be at odds with kemp uh giving him a warm endorsement and meanwhile newt gingrich is back in the state uh promoting uh david purdue uh so the split between among republicans the pro-trump and the trump skeptics i think it's safe to say continues right down to the end of the election tomorrow. Absolutely. And um, very critically, Mike Pence is going to be coming in to stump for Brian Kemp, yeah. not David Perdue, you know, Donald Trump's chosen person on the eve of uh, of uh, election day. So that's absolutely notable. You know who we haven't seen, though, is, is Donald Trump um, recently, who is, of course, David Perdue's kind of ace card. And what's been interesting is we haven't seen a ton of David Perdue lately, not as much on the trail, not nearly as much as what we've seen from Brian Kemp, who's been making, you know, half dozen stops each day. And, you know, Perdue are much more kind of spread apart. We're not seeing him on the airwaves in, in the way that we're seeing Brian Kemp, who, who needs to deliver a knockout punch. And it's looking likelier and likelier in polls that that that, that very well could happen. Um, David Perdue's hope right now is to be able to pull Kemp into a uh, runoff on on June 21st. And, you know, just runoffs here are historically unpredictable. But right now, the posture that um, Brian Kemp seems to be running on is that, you know, it's increasingly looking likely. Um, Tia, we know there are five candidates running uh, for governor. Obviously, only Purdue and Kemp are getting real attention. Um, But five Republicans uh, running, which is where David Purdue's hope lies. But it's as Tamar just pointed out, um, the jolt this morning uh, reports that Purdue had one event over the weekend that that journalists uh, know about, and maybe there were other things going on that weren't reported out. Um, whereas uh, Brian Kemp made at least five stops uh, on the campaign trail, and also, as Tamar points out, Tia, there's no ad buy-up for. Uh, uh, Purdue in these final days of the race, probably because we know he hasn't raised a great deal of money. Right. And it's also interesting, you know, Brian Kemp is holding kind of bigger events open to the public, um, whereas Purdue is having smaller events just with GOP groups, you know, like the county GOP and things like that. Um, So even the scope of their events is different. The quantity of their events is different. And then, of course, (laughs) Their ad spend, you know, it looks right now that Kemp is a surging candidate. He's also, as you noted, has his um, 
you know, surrogates coming, more surrogates keep announcing that they're coming. Um, and and then you've got, again, so far, Donald Trump, not only has he not come to Georgia lately, but it seems that he's made statements that he's kind of almost hedging and, you know, avoiding talking up some of his candidates that look like they might not win um, in the primary. And that's something we've seen him do, not just in Georgia, but, you know, he doesn't like losing. And um, there is a chance that one or more of his endorsed candidates could be out on, you know, a week from today. Margaret? Yeah, I'm I'm not so sure what I take away from the fact that Purdue isn't holding um, public events uh, because he's speaking to his own choir. He is on Newsmax. He is on OAN. He is on all of the right-wing media channels. And those, the people that he believes in Georgia will come out and vote for him are watching those channels. It is very time efficient and very cost efficient to get free media attention by being interviewed by people like us. And so I, I think that yeah, he and, and his team have, have a strategy. They're not going to change people's minds in Georgia at this point, but they need people to turn out to vote for them. You know, his, um, I think his performance at, at the gubernatorial primary debates was, was rather extraordinary, you know, for the, the, the stoic, um, silent Sea Island resident that we all know in coastal Georgia. He was full of fire and, and brimstone, right? I mean, he, he probably uh, has motivated people who are voting Republican who are fueled by outrage to go out and vote for him because of those performances. So I know the polls have him down. I just think that we all need to wait until the end of of Tuesday and figure out exactly how many people in Georgia actually believe in his vision um, instead of Brian Kemp's vision or Trump's vision versus uh, Brian Kemp's vision. Yeah, our our friend, I should point out, and frequent panelist, WRBL-TV's Chuck Williams interviewed uh, uh, Drew Ferguson, the third district Republican congressman, uh, the other day. And uh, uh, he said, Drew Ferguson said, he believes that Purdue's campaign is tomorrow, quote, on life support. That's not something you really, now I get it. Drew Ferguson is, I assume, uh, uh, supporting Brian Kemp, so it makes sense he might want to say that. But it's still something to hear that in the days before uh, the final day of of voting. And pretty extraordinary to me as somebody who covered the congressional delegation in Washington. Drew Ferguson and David Perdue used to be allied, and it just goes to show how much this primary has ripped apart um, and kind of burned down a lot of bridges uh, with traditional allies. And, and look, I agree with Margaret in saying we, you know, it's not over till it's over. And at this moment, what David Perdue needs to do is just make sure that Brian Kemp gets less than 50 percent of the vote. Runoffs are so unpredictable here in Georgia, as Brian Kemp can attest to in 2018. So much can change over the course of only a couple weeks. So as long as he can keep the governor under 50 percent, you know, we, we can't answer any questions, you know. Margaret? Yeah, so, you know, in the in the smaller um, elite world of campaign strategists in Georgia, of course, there are people who are um, thrilled about what their internal polls are saying right now, if you're especially if you're a Republican strategist. But I think that um, from from all of the, you know, the the ire and the shade that people are throwing against each other, I just really think that those same political consultants have their work cut out for them after the primary, having to figure out how you go around the state and campaign on what's going to be a mixed ideological Republican ballot. How 
Um, how are Kemp and Herschel Walker going to campaign together? How are how is 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 anyone who's not a Kemp person at the top of the ballot going to be able to um, go with the governor around the state and and try and build a coalition of Republicans um, in order to win in November? That's a great, great point. Tia? Yeah, um, I, I agree. It's a great point because we know that the blueprint for Republicans to win statewide in 2022 in a swing state is to drop Trump for the general election and to focus on um, issues that can drive turnout. That still means you don't have to drop the culture wars because we know the culture wars drive turnout. But it knows that if you focus too much on Trump, if you let it be about the 2020 election, um, that's something, for example, the Glenn Youngkins of the world, he did not focus on Trump. He did not campaign with Trump. He did not talk about the 2020 election. He talked about what he perceived as parents and people in the middle caring about. And so to Michelle's point, are those candidates going to be able to do that? Is Herschel Walker, we see he's been trying to do that, and it looks like he's been successful. We know Kemp has been doing that, and he has been successful. But further down the ballot, if Jody Heiss is the you know, nominee for Secretary of State, can they do that? And then, therefore, can they campaign as a ticket? It's looking very likely that a very MAGA candidate is going to win the GOP. Um, nomination for lieutenant governor. Are they going to pivot? Will they pivot? And how will that affect them being able to campaign as a ticket? That's a very good question. And it's why we're not going to run out of things to talk about on Political Rewind (laughs) through the end of the year. Uh, Tia, while the ball's in your court, let's talk about the other side of uh, the primaries. While we know, again, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock at the top of the ticket run unopposed, they're there are active campaigns going on uh, for Secretary of State, for Attorney General, and others. The Democratic Party had its first state uh, gala uh, since 2019 last weekend. And uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar came down from Minnesota. She, of course, was a candidate for uh, president four years ago. Um, she urged Democrats something, I think, urge them to do something they're already well aware of and starting to do, and it gives us a chance to move to this topic. She said, you've got to run on the right to choice. It is going to animate voters. And Stacey Abrams, Tia, has already turned her health care message toward that uh, and is including that as part of her campaign strategy. Yeah, and and again, because kind of similar to the point I just made, we know that turnout is going to be key for the general election in a swing state like Georgia. And candidates on both sides are looking at issues they think will turn out voters. And, you know, on the Republican side, it might be schools and COVID policy and attacking Democrats on inflation and gas prices. On the Democratic side, it's going to be, you know, abortion, now it's going to be domestic terrorism and white supremacy and white nationalism. You know, there are these key issues that Democrats think can entice voters in the middle to side with them. Tamar, you filed a piece on how Republicans, how, how many Republicans in Georgia, who used to be a little bit cautious 
about how far they went in opposing abortion rights, how they're moving to the extreme right on this issue. Talk about what you learned when you reported that story. Sure. I mean, as recently as a few years ago, even among, you know, anti-abortion activists, there were still some that were hesitant to advocate for a policy that would ban all abortions, no exceptions for rape and incest. Now that's becoming increasingly popular, hardline, no exceptions at all. And we're seeing candidates like David Perdue vouch, vouch for stuff like that. You're even seeing folks running for races that have nothing to do whatsoever with abortions, like Jody Heiss running for Secretary of State, um, who are also advocating for that, that really hardline policy. And you're seeing that even some of these candidates are going farther than even some of these longtime anti-abortion advocates have been mm-hmm. saying. Um, and maybe it's just because the playing field has shifted so rapidly. I think everyone kind of assumes that Roe versus Wade would still be the law of the land, and, and maybe it would be too much to ask for an outright ban, no exceptions. Uh, but in order to win these primaries, um, all these conservative candidates are, are really trying to up their street cred uh, with the base. But, Margaret, it feels to me that since we are going to end up having general elections, there are Republicans and Democrats who are moving in the wrong directions on how they approach choice. So what I mean by that is, as Tamar just pointed out, we have Republicans who are moving all the way to total bans on abortion, promoting that idea. On the other hand, Margaret, when the Senate voted last week, led by Chuck Schumer, on their right-to-choice bill, it went all the way in the opposite direction. And we know that most Americans do support the right to choice with certain limitations. The Senate didn't take those limitations into consideration. So it feels like both sides are moving in directions that are not supported by most Americans. Yep, we are living in a time and place in America where coalition building um, seems to be, you know, a, a historic relic. And and getting attention on the 24-hour media news cycle means you have to say things that are outrageous and 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 get you um, 15 minutes or even 15 seconds or give you a you know three sentence uh, um, you know explainer on on a news channel's crawl. But that's why Americans are getting so um, you know outraged about the state of politics in America. You know the the what what we're hearing in terms of headlines isn't reflective of our daily lives, our daily needs, and our daily priorities. And since we are all um, your, your panel today are all three um, women. You know, I think we can all safely say that an abortion ban isn't going to end abortions in America. It's going to make abortions more unsafe for people who need it. And if you um, and if politicians would actually look at the polls instead of looking to their base, we might actually find some common sense solutions to both health problems, economic problems and, and social problems that we all face. Yeah, I want to give you a chance to wait, but let me point something out. I mentioned it on the show a few weeks ago. Um, if, in fact, the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, goes ahead with this decision, this opinion that we've seen leaked now, um, and turns this uh, 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 notion of choice back to states, it, we are going to see wars on the scale among states not seen since the Fugitive Slave Acts were passed in the days of the Civil War. It's an extraordinary thing to think about, Tia. Yeah, and I just was going to make the point that abortion rights is an economic issue. The strides that women have made in the workplace, um, 
the the changes in um, the balance of many family units with two parents working, with women sometimes being the breadwinner. There is a direct correlation to that and abortion rights, abortion access. So I'm not saying that every woman who's prospering in the workplace had an abortion. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying as a general kind of study, those who study economics say abortion access has played a role in strides women have made, and therefore curtailing abortion access will likely have a negative role because there will be more women uh, who have babies who otherwise may not have because they don't have that access or can't afford it. And um, that's something we should keep in mind. All right. Thank you for a great start uh, to the show uh, today, all of you. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, um, we have to address uh, how people are reacting here in Georgia, particularly to the horrific mass shooting in Buffalo over the weekend. We'll do that more as Political Rewind continues. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Margaret Coker, Tamara Halderman, Tia Mitchell join us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Tia, you filed a story the other day uh, giving us reaction from Georgia political leaders to the awful, awful mass shooting in Buffalo over the weekend. Give us a little sense of what you learned. So, you know, I wanted it to be organic, so I kind of called their social media posts right after the shooting, you know, those first 24 hours. And what we saw was that when it came to Republicans, many Republicans didn't say much at all. Um, But those who did, the strongest statement came from Governor Kemp, who actually not only said, you know, he was heartbroken about the shooting, but said eliminate, eradicate hate. Um, Other Republicans, um, like, you know, said, you know, our heart is broken, or even Vernon Jones made it a non sequitur about inner city violence. Um, Democrats there were much more likely to talk directly about where that hate came from, not just hate, but racism, domestic terrorism, white nationalism. That's something you have not heard from many Republicans. And those who have said that, the Liz Cheney's and the Adam Kinzinger's, are those who are kind of on the outs with the party. Um, And so that's been very interesting to see that partisan divide even in talking about what appears to be, you know, what motivated this young man to target black people in a black neighborhood. Uh, Tamara, I I think we need to pick up on that. Uh, First of all, it's not surprising that a Lucy McBath, who came into politics because of the tragic uh, murder of her own son, uh, uh, as, a, as a very strong supporter of gun regulations, would be uh, deeply involved in this right now. But as uh, Tia points out, Democrats have also looked at the racist uh, 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 motivations behind this crime and uh, are also talking about uh, Republicans' refusal to stand up to white supremacist thinking. 
Yeah, and I mean, we've seen similar debates after every mass shooting that seems to happen with increased frequency in this country, right? Um, you know, Republicans in Georgia have shown that they're moving in the other direction when it comes to guns. They want fewer limitations on the right uh, to own and carry firearms. And as we saw with the bill that was signed into law by the governor um, this spring, uh, it also becomes tricky when you're talking about white supremacy, um, you know, because you obviously you don't want extremism in your party, but but also um, you know, there, there's some version of what has been said, especially when it comes to like immigration and not want, you know, wanting to tamp down on um, on immigration into the country um, that is in their platform sometimes. I mean, not as extreme as what is being espoused by the gunman in, in Buffalo, um, but still. So it's a tricky situation. And, and many of those people on the right, you know, are their primary voters. So you have to be careful. Margaret? You know, before I came home to Georgia um, full-time in 2019, I spent over 10 years covering counterterrorism. And uh, that mm. might, mostly was foreign yeah. terrorism, right? Because the U.S., after the September 11th attacks in 2001, passed the Patriot Act, which had definitions for what a foreign terrorist group was and had criminal penalties for supporting foreign terrorism groups. So, what is, I think, applicable right now in America is that we do not have criminal pe penalties for domestic terrorism and supporting domestic terrorism groups. That is absent from, from our, our criminal legal statutes. And so we're in this strange bind where uh, we have a, a push by Americans to expand gun rights without a a, a counter argument about people who are clearly motivated by what we would all agree are hateful ideologies. And, and there is no way to really censure both uh, individuals who, who commit hate crimes um, from a terrorism perspective, the people who support groups who promote hate crimes as a terrorism perspective. And so the, you know, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies have to deal with, um, with uh, you know, uh, suspected murderers as, as murderers instead of terrorists. If we have a nationwide uh, uh, you know, push to think about domestic terrorism and white supremacy and, and uh, neo-Nazi groups as terrorism, we might have uh, different outcomes when, when it comes to um, tragedies like this. Tia? There is, um, um, that's a great point, and I just wanted to point out two things. Number one, there is a domestic terrorism bill that now appears to be gaining some traction in the House. They're trying to make it bipartisan to address that. And I think on a related note, I just want to kind of encourage the people listening to not be so quick to say, well, that was just one crazy guy. That was a lone wolf. There, are, there really isn't such a thing as a lone wolf because they were radicalized somewhere, usually. They were on message boards somewhere, usually. They have been watching the posts, sharing the memes, attending the meetings that led them to this point, sometimes with direct encouragement to participate in violence, to participate in the genocide of Jewish people, immigrants, black people, uh, Latinos. So it's so quick. I think people, because they want to either for their own political reasons or because it's just scary to consider the alternative, people are so quick to say, well, that's just one crazy person. No, this was a crazy—all the evidence that has surfaced thus far indicates 
the young man, he was only 18, but that he had been shaped, shaped and shifted by the far-right white nationalist movement online. He was not a lone wolf. And of course, um, uh, Tamar, what motivated him apparently more than anything else was this so-called replacement theory, which in fact has become a talking point of mainstream Republicans. Not all of them, I want to be careful about, but some, Elise Stefanik, now the number three Republican in the U.S. House, um, has spoken about it. She says the plan of Democrats is to grant amnesty to 11 million illegal immigrants to overthrow our current electorate and create a permanent liberal majority in Washington. And she takes Liz Cheney's place as the third uh, Republican in the House. Uh, and Liz Cheney has been saying, we have to speak out against this sort of thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene attended an event last year with a right-wing group that believes that replacement theory is real. So uh, we do have to point out that this is gaining traction among uh, what we think of as formerly mainstream Republicans. Yeah, and I mean, Tucker Carlson <clears throat> on the show every night on Fox News, perhaps I believe the highest rating show on, on rated show on cable news right now, the topic he discusses regularly, too. And I think it's a, a touchy subject for Republican lawmakers, too, because you don't want to accept responsibility for that, right? You don't want to have to, you know, take responsibility for that. And, and folks are wary of kind of shifting their, their rhetoric or, or taking any blame for that. So it, it becomes a really uncomfortable situation. All right. Um, this is going to be a story that we're going to be following. President Biden uh, goes to Buffalo uh, to uh, express his condolences to speak about this awful crime, and we'll certainly pay attention to that. You'll hear about it later today on All Things Considered. Um, but we still have other subjects we want to address, and so let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk about more. Margaret Coker, who, by the way, uh, you, you can read at thecurrentga.org uh, if you want to read The Current. Margaret, um, Race is never far from the headlines in America today. And in Georgia right now, there's an ongoing case that is troubling a great many people. It took place down in Liberty County. The um, Delaware State University women's lacrosse team, uh, the bus that they were uh, going on came through Liberty County. They were stopped uh, by the sheriff's police. And um, uh, they were then all, got, they were all made to get off the bus their luggage was searched. It was an African-American. It's an HBCU. Uh, and so the team was all black. Um, and there are those who believe that this stop and the subsequent search uh, and scrutiny paid to these young women uh, was primarily because they're black and the sheriff's officer who stopped them was white. And it's uh, there's an investigation now underway, Margaret. That's right. So again, for your listeners in other parts of Georgia, Liberty County is a majority minority mm. county just south of Savannah. You know, the the ribbon of I-95 that, that goes um, from South Carolina down the Georgia coast of Florida, it is full of truckers. It is full of speeding drivers. It's full of um, Sunday drivers sometimes as well. But it is a gnarly place um, to to. Um, to figure out ways in which to get to your destination in a timely fashion. Sheriff's, um, 
sheriff's deputies routinely patrol um, 95 and they routinely pull people over. Now, the circumstances of, of this um, traffic stop um, seems to have some merit, at least on the face of it. Uh, a, the, the bus was traveling in the left-hand passing lane and there are, you know, there, there's um, when 18 wheelers and other large vehicles move into the left lane, that generally is frowned upon. And so what the outrage seems to be surrounding is not the original traffic stop, but the way in which the sheriff's deputies handled um, the, the busload of, of young women athletes and uh, their coaches and the black bus driver as well. And so this, um, the, the sheriff of Liberty County is a, is a black man. Uh, there is, he, he has said uh, to the press that he doesn't believe there was a racial motivation for the original traffic stop. But the handling of, of the subsequent uh, search of the bus and everyone's belongings is, is really now under scrutiny. So we'll see what the investigation holds. But, of course, uh, in coastal Georgia, in the aftermath of the Ahmad Arbery murder, you know, everyone is looking at this part of Georgia through a racial lens and and through, you know, the prism of America's racial reckoning. Uh, and Tia, the, the, well, the sheriff himself is African-American, as, as we said. The, I think there were two officers who conducted the search looking, they said, for drugs were uh, white. But, of course, the point of all this is, Tia, uh, whatever the outcome, we are always, always on edge about race in this country. We cannot escape it. And I don't, I want to quibble a little bit with your word choice because sometimes the perception is that, or the accusation is black people are always playing the race card and we make everything about race. Um, and so, you know, that it puts white people on edge because black people are always injecting race into things where race doesn't exist. But I want to maybe... My point well, is wait, wait, no, I really have to I really have to stop for a second because that was not in I, I understand how you interpreted that. I was not suggesting that I was suggesting that black people and white people continue to have this terrible tension over issues of race. Right. It's not one race or the other. Right. I really want to make that clear. Yeah, no, ahead. and I was going to say, and I was just going to say, maybe I'm not quibbling with your word choice as much as I want to say to give you a perspective as a black woman that sure. it's hard because we can't, we don't drop our race. We can't hide our race. Race is a part of every single thing we do. So every time you're stopped, we instantly have to calculate within a millisecond how could our race play a part in this interaction with the police. If we're in a store and a clerk comes up to us and says, may I help you, we are instantly having a, a conversation in our head about what perhaps could be the racial implication of this interaction. So it's not, and it, yeah, so I know you weren't trying to make it a thing. I'm just trying to give the black perspective. We can't drop race. We can't avoid the conversation of race because it permeates every single thing we're doing on every single day. It's not necessarily that it's negative, but it's part of what is in our mind no matter what. And therefore, interactions with police, we're constantly calibrating. Is it because I'm black? And that is what makes it harder because you don't know. Think about that. Think about the... Um, 
the mind games it plays with you when you can't tell whether you didn't get the job because you weren't qualified or because someone judged you based on your name or the color of your skin. And we may never know, but we know that what it feels like on the inside. So that's the point I want to make. Those, those young ladies on that bus, may never be told, yes, it was because of your race, or yes, we have proof, but they know how it felt in that moment. And they know that they had no drugs, and how does a man driving a bus, we know in a charter bus, you don't even know the driver most of the time. So why would the driver's infraction lead to a search of these college students' luggage? And they know how that felt, and they know they're black. Okay, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that, Tamar. And and I, you know, I completely understand. Especially, I mean, just look at the headlines in the last couple of years. I mean, look at Ahmad Arbery. Look at what happened in Buffalo. It's not like the frequency of all of this racially motivated violence is is going away. Margaret. Yeah, you know, um, last year we at The Current were looking into, uh, you know, policing an implicit bias, um, largely in Glen County, but but across um, coastal Georgia counties as well. And, you know, what we kept hearing over and over again from from black residents but and also police officers is this this tension with police comes to the forefront most often because police come to situations with a warrior mentality. Instead of actually treating people that they pull over or treating people as neighbors, they treat them as potential enemies and potential threats. And let's face it, in terms of a traffic stop, like that is not something that should trigger a red alert or a DEFCON 5. And if that's the way, you know, the, the snippets of video that we have from the bus that were taken by the young women athletes show that there was a hostility from the get-go when the white sheriff's deputies entered the bus. And a presumption of guilt, a presumption that you are carrying contraband of any sort should not be the first interaction that anyone has with police, especially since there is there, for the people on the bus, there was no underlying reason why they should be um, seen through that prism. Margaret, um, on, on the theme of our inability to reconcile uh, this country's history of racism, uh, I want to talk just for a couple minutes about a story that you posted on The Current. Um, it turns out that a search of the city of Savannah's municipal archives shows that um, in your reporter working with Georgia Southern University uh, uh, worked to put together an exhibition, an online exhibition, Jim Crow in Savannah's Parks, examining how Savannah denied black people access to the best public parks and recreational facilities, but that it was black taxpayers who paid for those superior park systems. Just give us a couple minutes about that, and people will post a a link to that story. Yeah, thanks for drawing attention to this. It's a really fascinating and incredibly educational um, project. The, you know, Savannah, um, Georgia's first city, um, loves its history. We have a great uh, municipal archivist and, and, and archives program. And there has been an intern from Georgia Southern who has been digging into um, city archives with a lens towards uh, racial justice and segregation. And Savannah has this long, proud history of having 
having integrated um, our schools and um, our, our municipal governments very peacefully. And of course, Martin Luther King um, praised Savannah's um, black population for coming and, and registering to vote in enormous numbers, more than any other Southern city um, back in the early days of voting rights and civil rights. So to have this, uh, this forgotten history of Savannah come out in a, an incredibly engaging visual um, uh, illustration of how uh, white leaders from the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, all the way up through the 60s were really um, pushing a, a, a intentional policy of segregation in city parks and city recreational facilities is um, eye-opening, it's sobering, and it's um, it reminds us all that that you know history will repeat itself unless we know our history better. We will we will post a, a link because it's a really fascinating uh, and and um, necessary story for people to read. Tia, we're running out of time, but before we leave, um, we got a week till the final day of voting, May twenty fourth. What are you going to be looking at? What do you what do you think are going to be the races that are mo- of most interest to you in the week ahead? So me personally, I'm focused mostly on our congressional races. We have some interesting primaries, you know, the 10th in Vernon Jones. Will he be able to at least make it to the runoff? We have, you know, uh, the 6th, which is now an open seat in a, a contested Republican primary. In the 7th, the McBath versus Bordeaux um, race. In the 2nd, we're going to see which Republican is going up against um, Sanford Bishop. Um, and, of course, you know, at the top of the ticket, the Senate, the governor, it's going to be an exciting day. Yeah. Tia, um, tomorrow, what, what, what do you want to uh, look for, uh, whether you're going to actually cover these races or not? What, what's of interest to you? I'm really fascinated by the Republican Secretary of State's race. All the polls have suggested mm. that Brad Raffensperger will be pulled into a runoff with Jody Heiss, a man that who uh, Tia and I covered closely in Washington. Um, you know, Jody Heiss, of course, has, has put questioning of the 2020 election kind of at the center of his bid. I'll be curious to see how much support he gets. Um, and of course, Tia mentioned it, but the seventh district Democratic primary between McBath and Bordeaux, two very different um, kind of philosophies when it comes to um, being a Democrat, you know, will the more centrist candidate win? Will the more um, liberal candidate kind of focus on gun control win? I'll be very curious. Uh, Margaret, meanwhile, uh, today we have big elections, uh, certainly in Pennsylvania, um, where uh, people are going to be watching to see whether Mehmet Oz, the Trump endorsed candidate there actually can pull it off. It appears that he's uh, struggling a little bit. That's going to be close. And North Carolina, where Madison Cawthorn is up for re-election, Trump is late, has, has given him a late endorsement. Uh, he's a very controversial candidate. Here's going to be another day we're going to watch to see the power of Trump a week before we learn what it's like here in Georgia. Yeah, and you know, talk about you know a a um, a present uh, for for Democrats. If Mehmet Oz actually pulls this out, you know, he he personifies so many contradictions of the Republican Party. He is an immigrant. He is a Muslim. He also has said he's not going to give up his Turkish citizenship, and if if it means he's elected, and and that creates all kinds of national security issues surrounding him. So it's going to be fascinating to see who uh, who Republicans uh, in Pennsylvania choose. We'll get a chance to uh, take a look at those races on our show tomorrow. In the meantime, by the way, um, you know, yesterday, if you weren't with us, uh, we did an hour with David Gergen, Patricia Murphy and I. He's got a brand new book out, advisor to four U.S. presidents, senior analyst on uh, CNN, 
Fascinating book about great leaders and what makes great leaders. If you get a chance, you want to listen to the podcast. Uh, we really enjoyed talking to David. That's it for us uh, for today. Margaret Coker, Tia Mitchell, Tamar Hallerman. What a great conversation. Thank you all so much for being here for Political Rewind. We're back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.